0: This session i wanted to particularly uh introduce this session with the two days of prayer and equipping what we wanted to try and do was put a mixture because uh, we meet only three times a year for these two days which are going to become increasingly important over the coming years to really gather and bring in all our teams and those working uh in in ministry in different ways to mix prayer fellowship food um and uh, just kind of opportunity to be together in a slightly more slightly less hurried way, uh, but also to have components in, so some devotional kind of stuff, a bit like I was trying to do this morning and then tomorrow morning, some equipping stuff, so tomorrow we've got some sort of, uh, some practical stuff that we think might help in terms of discipleship, and then some doctrinal stuff, we want to just um, have a kind of a menu of that kind of stuff happening each time we meet, so that we're kind of equipping you and we're praying together about key things. And on the doctrinal stuff, what i don't want to do is just to kind of create an atmosphere where we're just trying to look at different things going on and criticize and we're not trying to do that the bible says test everything and hold on to the good so what we want to try and do is to learn together to observe together to revisit perhaps some old things together over time so listen to some new things together and just to try to learn and sharpen ourselves and make ourselves better equipped in the word and able to ap- apply the word uh, more uh, helpfully into the context we're living in and learn kind of what the broader Christian scene, different trends and things that are going on so that we can we can position ourselves well in that. So we have asked Steph Liston uh, to come and do a session for us which he will explain, so I won't uh, steal his thunder. Uh, but just to explain, that's why in these two days I want to try and put in a doctrinal meaty session each time so that we can really kind of be equipped in that way. So I'd like to pray for Steph before he comes uh, so, uh, Steph, can you come and uh, do that? And then let's, let's just reach out our hands. I just pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for the gift that uh, this man is to us as a movement and to us as churches. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help him this afternoon to really uh, equip us well to engage with our hearts and our minds so that, Lord, we are more confident, more able to be stretched and strengthened and see new things where we need to see them and to be more convinced of old truths that, where we need to be reinforced in them. We pray, Lord, that we would be uh, robustly equipped, Lord, in this session together and have good fellowship and fun even in the process of looking at things, uh, we pray in the name of Jesus. pray that Steph would feel very at home, very kind of relaxed, just uh, looking at these things, helping to be himself and just let the gift that you've given him flow to bless us, Lord, here in this session together in Jesus' name. Amen. Even if we can't see one another, amen. So. <laughs>
1: Great, brilliant. Well, um, I'm looking forward to this session. Uh, hopefully, have a, a good time together. What we're going to be doing is, I guess, an exercise uh, in in how to weigh uh, scripture, how to weigh doctrine together. Um, so that means that the first session I'm going to just be talking about some things, given bringing in some scriptures, and then the second session after a short break. Um, We'll get into groups according to what particular issue we want to look at um, and begin to discuss these things together. So hopefully um, we will come away feeling equipped and built up. Um, I'll probably be be reading tied to my notes in ways that I'm normally not, just because this stuff took me longer to get ready than I thought it would, um, which means that I'm not actually that familiar with it. So (laughs) um, I've read it through once, but... um, (laughs) you know uh hopefully there's no huge gaps but that, so just please forgive me uh for that so just in terms of weighing uh, doctrine and uh, fresh winds of doctrine that come through just to say at the beginning that um this has been one of the church's responsibilities since the earliest of times since 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 the church was born and even some of the epistles are particularly written to uh to combat unhelpful teaching and set things straight and a lot of the ancient councils that were Convened were for the purpose, primarily a lot of the time of doctrine, you know what do you think of the Trinity, what do you think of the deity of Jesus and these other things so it 's something that the church has been doing since uh, she was born, and it 's a, a responsibility that we continue to carry uh, together. Then add the internet into the mix and suddenly you 're exposed to such a broad range of various teachings, ideas, doctrines that the whole the whole thing just becomes uh, a much bigger deal. And um, obviously, many of us would realize that many people in our churches um, are being pastored just as much by Keller, Juskal, and Piper in a, from a teaching perspective and others, many others, um, as, as they are from us. And so we've, we've, I guess we've just got to make sure that we're on the ball and sharp and, and willing to engage with this stuff to get it in a good, healthy spirit, um, joyfully, um, uh, and, and not see it as a chore, but see it as something that we are to be engaged with. Even those of us that aren't here as elders those of us, but we all have some responsibility in church life. And so to just, um, as Mike was saying earlier about this charge that's on all of us, this entrustment that we all have, let's all engage with this to whatever degree is relevant for where God has, um, God has called us. So I just want to reiterate the scripture that Mike referred to, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. We'll be flicking around a fair bit, so you, you, can, you can flick with me if you like, but you know, you might get sore fingers by the end, you know, or you can just kind of listen and These notes I can make available if anyone wants them. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So we're not to quench what God is doing. We're not to despise um, things that come prophetically, which would include various um, teachings. Um, But we are to test so that, we can hold fast to the good and abstain from stuff that would lead us into evil. So it's pretty straightforward. That's what we're going to do together in this session. Um, today we're going to teach and practice of um, particularly uh, two guys who are at, at, at the forefront, of, I guess, of a movement, you might want to call it. It's probably not. It's not really one movement, but two guys who are actually very, very different in personality. And, and style, but come together, they converge at certain points doctrinally. So, um, the, uh, uh, the f- which is C. Baxter Kruger and John Crowder, hence the title, Kruger and Crowder, Doctrinal Gunpowder. I hope you appreciate that. Um, that took me half the time of preparation, which is why it took <laughs> me much longer. Uh, so... Who is C. the Kruger? He's he's really an, a, a bit of an academic, really. Um, would be more of an ap- academic than uh, than I guess Crowder would be. Numbers of degrees and a doctorate. Um, lives in the Bible Belt, um, but is not your your tr- yeah, traditional Bible Belt believer. Has although his memories of church growing up are fond. He's actually moved away from some elements that we would traditionally associate with with the Bible Belt. Author of numerous books, including. Jesus and the undoing of Adam, which we'll be looking at together today, particularly because that's where some of the foundational doctrines really come through that we can engage with together. And, uh, and the other guy, John Crowder, really very big, very charismatic personality. He he leads, um, I guess, I don't know what it is, a, a movement, internet movement called the Sons of Thunder. He's, um, he's from a druggy background, um, an extreme revivalist, uh, kind of very high octane. Very radical, very provoking. i mean, genuinely, you know, on, numbers, on, on some levels, genuinely helpfully provoking. Um, author of a few books, to name two of them, miracle workers, reformers, and the new mystics, and mystical union. Um, so what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend most of our time um, looking at the Kruger book because um, Kruger and Crowder, I've real tongue that. They they converge doctrinally, although their styles are very different. They converge. Um, but I'm going to just make a few comments, um, a few observations about um, John Crowder and 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 what he's about at the start, just to give you a bit of a background. He believes in a glorious and restored church, John Crowder. He believes in end time harvest revival. He believes in a sealed canon of scripture. He believes that we can all walk in the greatness of past heroes. He believes absolutely in the Bible's miracles, and he's really, really refreshing on that front. Um, I, my observation, and again, this is subjective, it's not, you know, this is fallible, but I would say I look at him and I think you're graced as a prophet. It's probably a grace on you um, from God as, as a prophet, but probably beginning to function a bit more as an apostle, which I think is a shame. I think you know, he needs an apostle in his life. That would be great. That would really help him so that he can just be who he is, but uh, more safely anchored. Um, Crowder's got some really big ideas. I'm going to read you a couple, of his, a couple of quotes. And so he could be charged with having an over-realized eschatology. You know what that means? It basically means that you're, you're, um, the way you live is almost as if Jesus has returned and the kingdom has been fully consummated. So, of course, everything amazing should be happening all the time. That's what that means. So a couple of quotes just to give you a flavor. Even before the new earth and millennial reign of Christ, God is going to restore his people to walk in Adamic power over nature. Now, again, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying in in and of itself that is a completely erroneous statement. I'm just saying that's the kind of, that's, that's where he's at. And I'll give you another example walk in the spirit and the warfare of the mind vanishes in an instant. I think that one's probably a bit more extreme. And I think probably you'd struggle to argue that one biblically. But that very high expectation, really high bar, which on many levels is really helpful, but sometimes it just goes somewhere that you suddenly think, oh, I, I'm not sure that that one's, actually, that one's anchored. But he says some really great stuff like, do not take yourself too seriously. Do not press in so hard in prayer to the point of human strife. Be patient with yourself. Always remember that joy is a cornerstone of the kingdom. He remembers that we are but dust. That's great. He says, great things like, we are learning that the master key to overcome all these demonic strongholds is simple intimacy with the Lord. In Jesus, we find the source of all our strength, power, authority and dominion. He says, don't try and justify yourself. Forget the denial. We must, we just admit our desperate shortcomings and embrace the power of the cross. Never give Satan the benefit of putting you on the defensive. He says, we do not preach the signs and wonders gospel any more than we preach an intellectual gospel. We preach Christ crucified. That is our gospel. He says, our main task is to build up the church and focus on the Lord. He says, surely we can do nothing of positive, eternal consequence apart from Christ, but there is a basic, inherent value in the natural realm that cannot be denied. He says some great things. Um, So again, I want to just bring that into the picture here. He has some really good things to say about mission, particularly into the Muslim world. He thinks globally, which is excellent. Um, He is refreshing in his anti-cynicism concerning miraculous accounts of the past. He accepts some may have been embellished but would rather embrace that than a suspicious and over-analytical approach. I think this makes him really appealing to those who really want him to experience supernatural and the power in the church. Um, He's really, really big on being intoxicated in the spirit. Massive. um, uh, Very anti-institutionalism, very anti-anything that smacks of religion good. Um, But it's probably his strength and his weakness a bit, as I guess most of our strengths are. Um, due to the internet, much of his, in quotes, Holy Spirit antics are now available to watch. Um, and I know at this point it can get a bit subjective, um, but I'll, I would definitely question the wisdom of some of the stuff that goes on. It's, it's, <laughs> it, you know, you just, you're not helping yourself, you know. Do you know, you, know, you just, I won't go into details because I don't want to come across, you know, just p- picking out, but it's just, it's very, it, it, it's ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? No, but but you know that, and and some of so I question the wisdom of it, and I and 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 it gets to a point in some of it where I'm I'm definitely questioning the source of it. I'm thinking, is that the Holy Spirit? Okay, so I'm just being honest with you there. Um, But man, alive, you know, does he want more of the Spirit? So it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing, you see, because what you can do is you can see that and go, oh, I'm not having any of that. And what you do, you get some bathwater and a baby and you throw it all out, uh, and then you 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 develop something ultra-cautious. You think, why isn't God moving? So you really got to be wise in these areas. The biggest issue for me probably is that um, being drunk in the Spirit, to some degree, becomes the goal. Now, not entirely with John Crowder, because he's actually a raving evangelist and he wants people to be empowered in the Spirit to go and reach people. That's fantastic. But he calls the meetings slosh fests, which, it, it, slosh, like as in getting drunk, slosh fest, it's the slosh fest, that's what it is. So now, the, so again, I've I just questioned the wisdom of it, because what it does is that you tend to associate, okay, being filled with the Holy Spirit equals being sloshed. Now, biblically, you've got two things. You've got, they thought they were drunk on the day of Pentecost. And you've got ephesians five don't be drunk on wine if they' be filled with the spirit so there's there's obviously a link there, but to begin to say the main teaching of the of the Bible on being filled with the spirit is that we might uh become intoxicated in some way it's you're building something really big on on a, on on something really thin it's not going to stand up being filled with the spirit is about boldness assurance it's about power for service it's about the fruit of the spirit that's what being that's where it goes now maybe that there's intoxication I'm not up for that as much as the next person it's fine but I think particularly the young and impressionable it can it can get a bit crazy and some of the stuff on the internet it really does go crazy so and I'm just talking about falling down I'm talking about plain unhelpful stuff so uh, so that but you know what you know the, the guy says some great stuff and he's a provo- if you let him if you let him be a provocation in a good sense he can he can be a really helpful provocation you know so I really don't want to, you know, I don't want to just just do him down. Now, I don't know where Kruger, the other guy, is at with, with, with all of that stuff I've just spoken about in terms of the Holy Spirit stuff. But like I said, they converge doctrinally, and that's what I want us to focus on today. Um, so we're gonna, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just look at five points from the book called Jesus and the Undoing of Adam by C. Baxter Kruger. Um, I'm going to look at one point, just to highlight the point Kruger makes, respond. Next point, respond. Next point, respond. Session ends, cup of tea, gather back, discussing groups. So, okay, here we go. So, point number one from Baxter Kruger's book, God as Trinity. He is massive on Trinitarian theology. Great, okay, very good. Um, but he argues, because this is so central to the nature of God, and therefore salvation, Kruger is very opposed to the idea that the Father turned away from the Son at the cross. Um, because it presents an understanding of salvation where the Trinity becomes separated in order to save us instead of the community of the Trinity together saving us. So you followed that logic? Kruger's concerned that we take our starting point for the gospel as the fall rather than pre-fall eternity, the, the community of the Trinity together working out our salvation and adoption and being brought into the life of God. Um, So that's his point. That's his first point. I'm going to just respond to that now. Um, Well, Kruger refers a lot to Athanasius. Was that me? No? Has my... I don't know what that means. (laughs) Seems fine. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Okay. So many of you will know I, Athanasius. He was the the, the, the great sort of um, champion of the Trinity, if you like. So when Arianism, i.e., the uh, fundamentally the belief that Jesus is not of the same substance as the Father, was really beginning to take hold and was growing, he's the guy who really lifted up a standard and fought for uh, Jesus as fully divine. And and Kruger refers a lot, um, a lot to him. Uh, I think the emphasis on the unity, uh, harmony, and perfection of relationship within the Trinity. Uh, does raise important questions for us as to how the son's estrangement from the father actually worked. Okay, I think it it raises some really good questions. Evangelicals are clear that Christ's atonement was as much the father's work in sending the son as it was the son's work in giving himself up and is the spirit's work in revealing gospel truth. But quite what that meant for those three hours of darkness on the cross or from Gethsemane to the tomb, uh, we need, it'd be good for us to think through. So let's do that together, shall we? Okay. We know that Jesus offered himself on the cross through the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9.14. So the crucifixion was a spirit-empowered act on Jesus' part. Does this mean that the spirit was also separated from the Father? Or was it the fact was it, in fact, the ongoing relationship between the Father and the Spirit at all times, alongside the ongoing relationship of the Son and the Spirit at all times, that helps us understand how the Father and Son can be separated, and yet at the same time be held together in some way during those awful hours of darkness? Question mark. Kruger would say there was no change in the relationship between the Father and the Son during the crucifixion. Nothing changed between the Father and the Son. Jesus was not separated from the Father and in no way under his wrath. And yet the plain reading of the gospel seems to suggest that the anxiety Jesus experienced in Gethsemane was completely out of character with anything we see in Jesus beforehand. Pointing to something very significant beginning to change in his own experience from that hour. The cup that Jesus asked might pass him by seems a clear reference to the cup of God's wrath Mentioned in the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. The son, it seems, is about to experience the wrath of the father. And yet, one of the most difficult verses to explain is John 16, 32, where Jesus says, Behold, the hour is come, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the father's with me. (laughs) What do we do with this? It's difficult because Jesus is obviously predicting predicting the moment where his disciples were split in the garden. That's what he's predicting. Many evangelicals would say that Jesus has already started dredging the cup at that point. Hence the anxiety in the garden. And yet Jesus, speaking of this hour, says, the Father's with me. So what do we make of that? How can we explain it? Well, there's probably two options. One is, is that we say, well, in the garden, Jesus got a view of what it would be like under the Father's wrath. But it didn't happen until... On the cross, so Jesus is saying at least the Father will be with him from the point where his disciples run and where he was crucified. But that's not very convincing. It reads a lot more like Jesus is saying that the Father will be with him during his darkest hour. So option two, there comes a point where you you stop and you simply say, I don't know. I don't know. As well as the divisible um, unity of the Trinity, God is three, there is also the indivisible unity of the Trinity, God is one. And you don't want to start getting into boiled eggs and ice and water. We heard that this morning, you know, because you, you, you end up reducing the trinity into something that's not, not in order to try and explain something we can never explain. And so on the one hand, you want to steer away from a kind of, a, how can I explain it? You want to steer away from a view of what happened on the cross that is so narrow that it removes all mystery. That would be a mistake to make equal to the one I think Kruger is making in what he is suggesting. The cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somebody said, Hold on a minute, surely. Well, what does Kruger say about that? Well, that's originally from Psalm 22 verse 1. Messianic Psalm. And Kruger doesn't see it as a convincing argument that God's forsaken Jesus at all. In fact, the opposite. How, I hear you ask. Well, thank you. The psalmist, <laughs> the psalmist in Psalm 22 ends with things like this. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so it shows that although the writer of the psalm, writing prophetically as the Messiah, felt forsaken, he actually wasn't, as was the case with Jesus. In that moment, sure, he felt forsaken, but no way was he forsaken. It just felt like that because that's what sin makes you feel like. More on that on another point. Of course, you could just as well argue that the psalmist foresaw messianic separation as well as messianic rescue, i.e. the father then raises him from the dead. And so therefore you can argue the same thing either way. And so I don't think Kruger's argument is really strong from that psalm to say actually it's the opposite. I don't think it's strong at all. I think you could say, well, the psalmist just saw the whole thing pan out and obviously Jesus is no longer in the grave. If he is, let's all go home. Yeah? Because we're dead in our sins. He was absolutely rescued from the power of death by the Father. So we know that that in that sense the, the psalmist could have just seen that. One of the views of Kruger and the company is that the father was on the cross as much as the son was. And they cite Athanasius as their source for this idea. You'll find that coming through in the shack. And if you read the shack, you'll find that, remember, comes through, there's the, the father holds his hands up and, oh, golly, look, there's holes in there too. Remember that, that moment? So Kruger's just his latest book is called The Shack Revisited, but these guys are really, they're, they're, they're running together closely now in this stuff. I've been unable to find Athanasius saying anything about the father being on the cross. And I've got my cleverest guy to dig around. And um, the, 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 all he could find was Athanasius saying that Jesus' death was an offering to the father. It sounds much more like it, what the Bible teaches. So I don't, they, they cite Athanasius as their authority in this, not been able to find it anywhere. I think Isaiah 53 is probably a key for us here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's pretty clear. It's hard to find a way around that. The son was crushed by the father. But then you have Isaiah 50, which is another Messianic passage, which, speaking of Jesus' sufferings, says this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and, and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. <laughs> Therefore, I've not been disgraced. I've set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. So, was the Lord God crushing Jesus? Yes. Was the Lord God helping Jesus? Yes. The Bible teaches both. Was the son separated from the father, alienated, forsaken for our sin? Absolutely. It was the Lord's will to crush him. But by what, by, by what strength did Jesus come through and manage that deed on the cross through the eternal spirit? And so you, 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 what you have there. Is a mystery that you have to be able to hold together and walk with. If you don't, you end up embracing something strange, something of a strange idea. Um, You can engage with that in discussion later. That can be your question. For me, one of the greatest and most profound strengths of the book is his repetitive assertion that it's the desire of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to include us in their life. It's really quite glorious the way he does it. It brings Jesus' prayer in John 17 into sharp focus and inspires awe at what a privilege it is for God to set his affection on us in this way. So he's brilliant on the life of the Trinity and the community of the Trinity. But because of, uh, I would say, preconceived wrong ideas, he takes you down a blind alley in terms of saying, so therefore, he calls the separation the biggest lie. Massive, massive statements. Next one, number two. I forgot to start my timer. Sorry. (laughs) So I'm going to go for 10 minutes longer than I thought. Can you knock 10 minutes off it and start it? Is that all right? And then tell me when I'm done. Because I could just go for hours on this stuff. So, Number two, God is angry. Are you all right? I know it's kind of digging around, but you you guys okay, yeah? Yeah. All right. This is a doctrinal session, so we're supposed to do this sort of thing. Okay. Uh, God is angry. Kruger repeatedly describes the idea of God being angry with sinners as the mythological God, more akin to deities of surrounding nations of ancient times and not the God of love and grace we see demonstrated in the person of Christ. He sees this view of God, this angry God, God angry at me, as more a symptom of our sinfulness, um, that the disease of sin makes us begin to see God in this light, a world away from what he's truly like. Wow. Big idea. I think this is where Kruger, from my perspective, probably hits the most trouble. I think um, maybe it's because his book um, that we're uh, critiquing isn't primarily about the wrath of God per se, but the fact that he's not given any comment on the wrath of God towards sinners throughout the Bible, mentioned way over a hundred times, is startling. I just I was I was quite surprised by this. I did a New Testament study on the wrath of God, found 33 explicit mentions, 17 from Paul, the apostle of grace. 10 from John, the apostle of love. <laughs> um, we could look at Psalm 7, verse 11, where we're told that God feels indignation every day, and the word there means foaming at the mouth. The word there for indignation is the word used for foaming at the mouth. God feels that every day. We, are, we could take the example, for example, the story of the Passover and the Exodus. How do you explain that story? without an understanding of the wrath of God against other so-called gods and hard-hearted oppressive people, or the story of the conquest of the promised land with whole cities devoted to destruction, or the story of Revelation with kings and generals and great ones running for the hills asking for the rocks to cover them for the great day of the wrath of the one on the throne and the Lamb has come. The only conclusion I can possibly see is that he regards much of the biblical narrative um, to be the mythological projections of fallen man and not God's self-disclosure. That's the, uh, the only conclusion on this point. I want to approach this even-handedly, but on this point, I just think you, 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 you have to throw out whole portions of the Scripture to teach that God is not angry at sinners. He teaches God is angry at sin, but he says, no, God is not angry at sinners. The Bible clearly gives us illustrations of where God is. I think that um, it gets to the point where the matter becomes one of understanding not just Kruger's thoughts on the atonement, but also his thoughts on Holy Scripture. How do you approach the Bible? What? How do you see the Bible? Um, the one strength of Kruger's point on Roth is that he communicates God's anguish and God's heartbreak over our choice to turn away from him beautifully um, and his anger at sin itself. He articulates beautifully. Um, I would say that... Uh, yeah, it, it, that, if you can, if you can picture all the rest, that's nice. Um, but ultimately, I think the problem here is that he has, to some degree, embraced the spirit of the age, with his distaste for a morally holy and jealous God. So when he talks about the holiness of God, I've seen him personally, not seen, him, I've seen him in an interview on on the internet, saying that the holiness of God is not about God's moral character at all. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that God is Trinity, and isn't that different? So. There's, there's there's some slippery slopes going on there. So you can you can look you can talk about um, the wrath of God in your groups after this break if you want to. Now we're gonna get into it. This one's a big one here. Number three. You alright still? All right. Say I love doctrine. I love doctrine. Brilliant. So unconvincing. Okay, number three. We're gonna look at fallenness. Fallenness and was Jesus fallen? Okay. <laughs> Kruger, firstly, does not understand fallenness as evangelicals uh, do because um, he doesn't believe in either the legal or moral holiness of God as, as evangelicals do or the wrath of God as evangelicals do. So he believes fallenness to be a condition whereby we are not actually separated from God due to our sin in that sense. God's not separated from us. God is not turned away in, in wrath because of our sin. That, that, that is not objectively um, true. But due to the distortion and deception that sin brings, which it does, we believe God to be angry with us and th- and ourselves to be estranged from him, and so we are and so we don't draw near him from to him we we run from him there's an, there's an anxiety that comes with sin um, which drives us away from God in fear of this angry God that will judge us. That is his understanding of um of what uh, fallenness uh, means um he focuses on sin simply as a disease, which has, has got its strengths. Um, but what he means is that God is not impacted in any real way by our sin, i.e. removing himself from us, only we are running from him. Uh, then enter Jesus as fallen. Uh, well, okay, then he says, in order for Jesus to fully experience all that we are as fallen humans and then to redeem humanity in himself, he inherited fallen flesh and battled with the anxieties we have around drawing near to God, etc., And Jesus experienced this struggle for the full 33 years of his life. Now, obviously, answering this, look, responding to this is a little bit tricky. Um, I've got to say two things. Uh, Firstly, um, in terms of our fallenness, and then in terms of Jesus' fallenness. I'm a lot clearer on our fallenness, what it means to be fallen. Thinking about Jesus' fallenness has proved incredibly stimulating, and I want to draw you into that today. Firstly asked the question, is our fallenness simply down to our sin-diseased mentality, or are we genuinely estranged from God and banished from his presence as a result of sin? Or would the God of the Bible never do such a thing? He wouldn't banish sinners. He's not like that. Well, it was God who banished Adam and Eve from the garden. It was God who warned his own people, that if they didn't put blood on their doors, they would be destroyed by the destroyer. It was God who made it clear to the Israelites that if even an animal came up Mount Sinai, it would be killed. It was God who put in place the Levitical laws, demonstration of our lack of access to him without some significant steps being taken, always involving the shedding of blood. It was God who inspired Isaiah with these words, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. It was God who inspired Amos with these words, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. There's a real subtlety with this idea of God not being angered by by us in our sinfulness and instead simply being sad, and waiting to come back with open arms. What does it remind you of? A God, being, God being sad and just waiting for us to come back with open arms. What Does that remind you of the parable of the lost son? Yeah? So it's not, again, it's not completely a, a wrong idea at all. It's absolutely part of the picture. Absolutely. But you can't build your entire doctrine of salvation around a parable. It's not what they're for. And your entire understanding of the character of god around one parable it's it's not clever it's not a good and clever thing to do god's offense and anger at our sin seems clear as well as his communication of the fact that we cannot simply come in once we just get over our distorted view of him so when it comes to talking about jesus being fully fallen or not the discussion breaks down with kruger because we are talking about different things from each other okay because his understanding of fallenness is different from from mine, I absolutely believe the Bible teaches that fallenness means we are estranged from God, alienated from the life of God, and that something very significant has to happen before we can just come back. It's not just a case of getting over our anxiety about him. Something's got to happen, i.e., the cross. But it really helped me get thinking about the fallenness of Jesus. Was Jesus fallen? <laughs> let have a vote. Who here would say, I believe Jesus came as a fallen human being? As opposed to option, Jesus came as an unfallen human being. (laughs) (gasps) Okay, who's going for fallen? Okay, who's going for unfallen? Wow, you guys. Okay, well, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Where are we going to go here? Okay, so. We know for sure that he was really flesh. Amen? John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But was he sinful flesh? Well, Romans 8.3 says he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, suggesting that if he wasn't, he was certainly very like it with the limits, frailties, and vulnerabilities that we have. But if he was fallen, and if fallen means being alienated from the life of God, then what about all this talk of hearing from the Father and only doing what he saw the Father doing? Mystifying. But if he wasn't fallen, then in what ways has he experienced all that we do and has been tempted in every way? Hmm. Yeah, it's good to engage with this and just work it through a little bit. So Maybe he experienced what Adam and Eve did before the fall. Genuine, cunning, external temptation, but not the torment of indwelling sin. The Bible's clear that Jesus, though tempted in every way, was without sin, which I imagine means without <laughs> sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sinful actions. From this verse, he can't have been fallen in the same way that we are. Now, evangelicals at this point we want to point out that this changed around the time of his sufferings, to such an extent that he became sin. But we must ask ourselves, at what time did that begin? In the garden? On the cross itself? Or at the beginning of his ministry even. what? Well, Matthew 8 describes Jesus' healings and explains them as Isaiah 53. Jesus went around healing the sick and this is in Matthew 8. Uh, so Jesus healed the sick. Um, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So, interesting. So where did I get to on this? We'll get, you know, One of Jesus' titles is the second Adam. And I just meditating that, pondering that, I guess I'm comfortable with Jesus being not fallen and yet prone to every external temptation that we are. That in a sense, he was fully human as Adam and Eve were before they sinned, both vulnerable to temptation and in good fellowship with God. The difference being, though, that he was in that state, but in a sinful and fallen environment. Adam and Eve weren't. And so prone to temptations beyond anything they knew. And pain and all the stuff that came with that, as well as this, I think that Jesus in some way took on the fallenness of others or the sins of others, however you want to put it, from the st- in some ways and I might be wrong here, but I'm gonna give it, from the start of his ministry and th- there was a, something vicarious about his life and ministry as well as as well as the cross um, but it's a huge mystery, and I'm going to again you know you guys can enjoy that one with your questions. there it is, okay. I absolutely, It was as clear as I could be on our fallenness and what it means. And I disagree with Kruger on that. But I think Jesus' fallenness, think it through. Feel the freedom to think that one through. I'm having of time, so are we all right? Okay. Fourthly, Jesus is victorious. So Kruger says the victory of Christ is primarily his victory over fallen Adamic sinfulness, which manifests primarily in anxiety, projecting onto God the idea of wrath and displeasure, leading to separation as we run a mile from him. Okay? Jesus fought this anxiety by refusing to believe it and refusing to relate to God in this way. In doing so, he undid Adam's fallenness. The cross is about the crucifixion of the old Adamic nature so that a new humanity united under Christ might rise from the ashes. Sounds great. Sounds great. I guess because there are questions over some of the presupposed views, you still got to look at it in a little bit more detail. I kind of believe in part what Kruger's saying. I absolutely believe that Jesus' victory was over the Adamic nature, but I believe it was over a lot more than just our anxiety leading to selfishness. I believe Jesus' victory was also a victory over our willful desire not to submit to God's rule. I believe that Jesus' uh Victory was a victory over our rebellion. I believe Jesus uh, on the cross um, beat all of that and made a way for a brand new humanity definitely under him to rise out of the ashes. I also believe Jesus beat Satan and the demonic powers at the cross, Colossians 2.15. I also believe Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law and became a curse for us on the cross, Galatians 3. I also believe Jesus, as I said earlier, beat our own uh, Willful, internal, rebellious, sinfulness by becoming a propitiation for our sins. Which and that word there it means one who placates wrath, one who wins favor by turning away the wrath of another. You have got Romans three, Hebrews two, one John two, one John four. So uh, it's, this is the shortest point. Uh, yes, Jesus is victorious, but it's on it's it's way beyond um, the way Kruger sees it. And then finally, you guys have done well. Well done. It's it, it's 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 it's, uh, I mean, I've had months to chew over this stuff. So I know I'm giving you, and it's like, flip, you know, which is why I'm going to say stick with one question and maybe two when you break into your groups so you can really have a chance to dig down a bit. Christians is united with Christ. So Kruger's really inspiring on this. He's really great on God's heart to catch us up into the life of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, really inspiring to the point, you know, I, I, there were times reading this towards the end of the book where I just felt, just washed over you know in 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 new and wonderful ways you know because it's you know there's some really great truth in the things that he says his victory is our victory wow they're really strong on um the absolute uh, ability of jesus to 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 the, the total victory of christ and what that means for the cosmos what that means for us as we're united with him and it's just it's tonic for the soul um we no longer have to be slaves to this idea of an angry God. <laughs> we no longer have to give way to such ideas. Because that's part of our fallenness. We've been rescued from that by virtue of our union with Christ. This is true of everyone, believer or not. I'll say that again. We have, we have all been united with Christ, believer or not. So this is, <laughs> this is a big idea. This is quite a big idea. Um, So we've got to look at this because it really does lay a foundation for universalism. Um, Also, there's traces of the super grace stuff. I know some people were into for a while. You know, I know there was some stuff around the super grace. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but anyway. Anyway, look, here we go. My response. It's great to hear about our union with Christ and all the riches that are ours through being joined with him. And he unpacks it beautifully. I'm grateful for it. Um, so like I said, lifted my heart to a place of great confidence and wonder. This is brilliant. Um, amazing that I somehow get to partake in the divine nature in some way. I mean, he gets hold of the really sublime verses and he says, so what are we going to do about that? And it's like, man, uh, you know, wow, partakers of the divine nature. Um, I think the down, one downside is it could lead to a bit of, like I said earlier, a bit of an over eschatology where I begin to ignore the reality of indwelling sin um, and the need for confession of sin. That was a super grace guys were teaching that. You haven't got to confess sin anymore. Sin's dealt with. You haven't got to confess your sins anymore. And that's, that's, where, that's where that can go. You've got to watch out for that because it's an over will That day is coming, guys. <laughs> the consummation of the kingdom. where We haven't got to confess sins anymore. There is no more indwelling sin, brand new bodies. But that's not the age we're living in. There's still, we're joined with Christ, hallelujah, but we live with indwelling sin. If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and um, makes out God to be a liar too. So um, Kruger believes we're all united with Christ. That when the Bible talks about God reconciling all things to himself through Christ in Colossians 1, he's saying that all things and all people have been reconciled. So we are not estranged or separated, what he calls the big lie. We're reconciled. We just need to see this. Now, how how does this work in terms of election? Well, this is the belief that Christ is the elect, and because Christ... And because everything has been reconciled in Christ, we are now all the elect. Which I think Karl Barth taught. Karl Barth, I think he taught that. I think he was one of the proponents of that idea. So responding to that, it's an intriguing idea. Um, and I love the idea of Christ as the elect and all in him as elect. I believe that. I believe Christ is the elect and all who are in him are the elect. But uh, to say that all are in Christ is, I believe, a step beyond Bible teaching. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Um... It gets you onto really thin ice. It's like a patchwork quilt with a lot more gaps than quilt. You know, you just think, man, how's this thing going to keep me warm? Do you know what I mean? There's some stuff there, but it's just there's it's too, way too many holes. Um, the Bible talks about the elect as a particular group of people. From the Old Testament, Israel right through. Um, the Bible also seems to relate Christ's cosmic work as being cosmically sufficient but not necessarily cosmically efficacious. You know, it, I don't think the Bible teaches that all things now have been reconciled to God through Christ in the way he's talking about. The Bible refers to some people post Christ's death as waterless springs, those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, certain people who long ago were designated for this condemnation, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith hardly sound reconciled to Christ. Yeah. So you, the thing with this thing is that it is an argument and a and a, and a progression and even some sub kind of logic to it. But then what it does is, as you then just read, just get back, just read the Bible earlier. <laughs> just read the Bible. The content and the flavour is it's it's not the same. It's a different thing. It's a, an idea that has developed at the expense, I believe, of just normal Bible doctrine. Um. And I think we need to, we need to, we need to. I think there's so much to be said for just simplicity and humility before God's word, and not trying to be too clever. Uh, actually, it's surprising because where these guys are great, they really—they're both for mystery. They both really are for mystery, and yet, actually, what they—I think what they've done is they've thrown out ideas that don't fit with their system. Well, mystery is often—it's often hard to see how certain things do hold together. Um, the, the secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us. So we take the things revealed, recognize we can't always see how they always hold together, but if we embrace them and walk in them, what, is, what happens is maturity. What happens is godliness. What happens is uh, a straight life that's built well. Um, that, that's, 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 that's a really important key. It's not so much about being able to tie that. How does that work with that? We don't know, but both have been revealed and belong to us in God. Okay, now, what time is it, sir? OK, great. What I'd love to be able to do, because I know I've just I've splurged a lot there and I, I didn't know how long it would take me. So it's taking me shorter than I thought. OK, so what I'm going to do now is so that you, when you guys come to engaging questions, I want to try and clear away any confusion now. So for fifteen minutes, and I know there's a lot, and I understand there will be. That's fine, but just fifteen minutes now for you to say when you said he said this, did you mean, or when you said you, you, when you said that, did you mean? Just so when you come to engage in the questions, you're clear what we're getting at. Okay. So any questions? Yes, Gavin.
2: How do we um, divide between um, <laughs> teachers for whom we say that's okay, discard that? And teachers who are false teachers yeah. who, who actually lead people astray and we're to have nothing to do with. How, how do we kind of weigh up where
1: people, people are at? Repeat the question. How do we discern between those who have – teachers who have something to say and we've just got to separate between what we're going to hold on to and what we're not going to hold on to, and false teachers that we want to – either ourselves and to the people are responsible for – say, don't go near them. You know, I've been pondering that. <laughs> uh, as English people, we are, we are uh, a constant source of surprise to Americans, so I've heard, in the way that we are very moderate culturally and tend to err towards, well, we'll just take the good and leave the bad in everything and won't ever say the latter. This is just, you know, outright all bad. Um, but I think from things I've heard anecdotally is that the American approach would be much more like, if you don't say everything we believe and you're a false teacher. Um so I think culturally we we are more we we find it more easier to do to do the former. <laughs> there must come a point though where you say, This is a different gospel. Yeah. Um I probably I, I don't know that I've got much more to say because I don't know that I know the answer myself. I've been throwing it around my head thinking, hmm, exactly what you've been saying. I guess the things I would say that are probably inconclusive at the moment, and if any of the team want to say some stuff, please help me out. But the things I would be happy saying at the moment are that, um, and I don't mean this in a kind of patronising, weird kind of way, but there are certain things that I I can read, extract some good from. Um, that I wouldn't be recommending to people under my care, because I'm concerned there's probably a bit more bones than meat, and they could end up choking. Yeah, so you just actually, do you know what? It's not going to help you to get into this because it's just there's a it's just <laughs> that that. I think when people start also, when people start fiddling around with the nature of God, which I think they're doing a bit, I think to start redefining the holiness of God as not having any moral implications, that's naughty. Do you know That is not good. That is, you've got the, that's the character of God. You, might, you, can't, you can't do that. And also when people start playing around with the cross uh, uh, and what happened there, that's holy ground. You know? So I think there does need to be in us a sense of wanting to um, protect people from, from things that would actually have often very seductive and quite clever. And I think we need to be able to do that. But I think for, particularly for elders, part of what you're doing is guarding the gate. You've got to be engaging with this stuff.
2: Because my concern is that, if, if say, so, for example, each one of us here who have ever been recorded, um, anybody could look at what we've said, isolate it, and we'd all come out as heretics at yes. some point. Yes. Uh, and there's a difference between error in teaching has kind of, uh, you really could have said that differently and it would have said, but the, the, the warnings in the, in the epistles are about false teachers, mm-hmm. not just guys who kind of could have put it a different way yes. and it's not quite so helpful for you. Yes. Uh, there's
1: a I think I would, at the end of the day, I think you have to say, as, as local elders, you have to make a call. That's your responsibility, I think, isn't it? You oversee the church, and you have, a, you have a, a local church that you are responsible for. And I think as elders, you need to be engaging with winds of doctrine that are coming through and particular personalities and saying, okay, what are we, what, what we going to say about these particular ministries? Are we going to name these as unhelpful and uh, warn people away, or are we going to say something which that is slightly, slightly less strong? I think that's the best I can say at the moment. Is that okay? Yeah. Great. Anything else? On anything I've said. Can I just uh, add to that? Um, yes. One of, the, one of the tests.
3: Sorry. <laughs> one of the uh, tests that Jesus gives in Matthew 7 is by their fruit you will know them. So it's not just a question of actually discerning what is good and what is bad in regard to what they're teaching, because there can be good thoughts, bad thoughts, good, good ideas, and so forth. Mm. The bottom line must always be how does this affect you in terms of your lifestyle yeah. and what it actually produces. And that's a much more difficult task for us now um, in terms of internet and so yes. forth because we don't always know these folk and what they're, they're teaching. Yes. Um, so whereas it is good that we've got a way and we've got to be c- courageous enough to say yes that's good or that's bad. Yeah. I think the bottom line is sometimes we've got to look at that whole question of what does it actually produce yeah. Within the lifestyle of God's people, because that's what Paul was always uh, annoyed about. I- yes. You know that those Judaizers were actually causing the believers to live in a way yeah, right, that yeah. was not honouring to God. Mm. And so there's an evaluation of lifestyle that's also kind of important that comes out of it. Brilliant. That. Thanks, Mike.
1: Okay, was there a hand that went up over there before someone else to ask a question? Yep. No. Uh, you talked about
3: Crowder and Kruger converging. Doctrinally, in what way does Crowder take on board all of Kruger's teaching? or
1: Those points. Yeah, the, the points that I just raised uh, through the book uh, would be strands of teaching that I would have picked up on through Crowder's uh, video sermons. Um, uh, so the points that I brought through doctrinally would be points where they would converge as, 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 as guides. Yeah, they, they believe this. Could you um, could you help us to? Could you help us to spot any areas in the UK church where you see their teachings beginning to manifest themselves, or where where where, where would you spot spot this? I, great, yeah. Does that come through now, or do I have to re-say it? That will come through. Okay. Areas of the UK church. I think I think we are. I think we're, uh, we're great on the father waiting for the children to come home with his arms wide open, we, and we need to keep being great on that and get stronger and stronger on that. I think at the same time, though, we're probably getting weaker and re- weaker and weaker on the wrath of God, which is why it really sent me back to the Bible. It really sent me back to, okay, what do I believe? What, is, what does the Bible teach about the wrath of God? And just doing, I did a few hours just through the New Testament, every, every reference, and it was incredible because I came away in awe of God. I came away just blown away by the majesty of God. And you just think, oh, my goodness. My, my God, is this this father who is waiting, longing with his arms open wide, is this terrifying king? I mean, it's just staggering. And so I think that's one area where I think we, we've, you know, so on that section, uh, one of the um, questions for that section uh, will be, you know, how do you represent the wrath of God in your local church? <laughs> Which kind of sounds quite funny, doesn't it? But um, it's just, it's sort of a, <laughs> you know, just sort of looking at that and how we, how, how, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want any comments on that because I know we've had some, even some personal discussions where you know I may be sort of a bit, a bit that way anyway, aren't I? Do you know what I mean? So. A bit wrathful. I am a bit. Do you know what I mean? So I may be coming up from a funny angle on that. I'm sorry. Can we just have it over here just for a second? Sorry. Sorry. I just started a little dialogue there because I don't want to just be bringing my own bugbear. Uh, I th-
0: I think the the issue is, um, say, on the adi- issue of adoption and justification, it's, I think it's C.J. Mahaney, you put it, put it much better than I can, that we do need to talk more about adoption, but that doesn't mean we talk less about justification, mm-hmm. that actually the two things serve one another, and we'll be looking a bit at that tomorrow morning d- devotionally. Um, but I also think, just one one comment on, on all of these things, is even even Paul kind of got more hot under the collar on some things than he did on others. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, as of first importance, mm. Christ died for our sins and mm. was raised. It's almost like there were some non-negotiables, and he yeah. thought, I'm not going to have any truck with that. Yeah. But there were other things further down the scale where he sort of said in terms of some, I don't know, church practice or whatever, he said, we don't have any other practice, nor do any of the other churches. But he wasn't about to sort of shoot somebody. Mm. He, was, he was more kind of saying, this is unhelpful, but... Mm. You know, there's a better way, mm-hmm. and I think the the sliding scale almost ne- we 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 do need to sort of almost like soak ourselves in Pauline uh, doctrine really just to understand how how did he discuss what was a what was a big big fundamental my gospel you know the, a guarding of the gospel and what was a kind of a well you know there's there's a few things here but we'll get to them yeah um, I haven't got a I haven't got a sort of a Definitive word on that, but I think Paul, by saying "as of first importance," clearly there was a, a kind of an ordering of things. Yeah. Um, but I think, as regards the Trinity, we, we've got to honour the Father, honour the Son, honour the Spirit, and and kind of keep give give due um, uh, vocabulary the way the Scripture does. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we 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 can get, you know, we can get lost if we just focus on justification, or just focus on adoption, or just even focus on the Holy Spirit. We can get,
1: mm.
0: we can get lost. So great. Yeah, that's Thank
1: you. my only thought. Just another comment quickly in terms of John's question about where do we <laughs> see this plan out in, in churches in the UK. I, I think that we are, we are in such a man or human, people-centered society and actually the, the scriptures are God-centered and salvation ultimately is for his fame and for his glory. We're the beneficiaries, of course, but ultimately it's for his fame and his glory. And I think um, we, we just need to restore a sense of the glory of God in the church the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the centrality of God, the awe and reverence of God. I think out, out, out of that comes a richness and comes a church life that is um, just a very different gravy. I'll read you my conclusion, then we'll get a cup of tea. Here's my conclusion. I think some of Kruger's criticisms of evangelicals are worth listening to. He writes with a fresh and inspiring voice and really made me think. He clearly considers himself to be representing the true ancient gospel and does not consider himself to be off on the edges by any means. But, and it's a big but, there are huge swathes of biblical truth that are overlooked or dismissed or consigned to the category of myth and human projection. Because of this, I think his ideas can only be described as woefully inadequate or incomplete. Um, If the strength of his writings, Trinitarian emphasis, God's determination to win and catch people up into his very life Believers' union with Christ. If they can be extracted and used to enrich evangelical teaching, we'll be all the better for it. But like I said earlier, if we're unable to chew the meat and spit at the bones, and I'm not sure what there's more of, we could choke. So that's, yeah, that's in, an incomplete car. Well, there we go. I hope, <laughs> I just, I'll leave you with a scripture. Uh, I just was struck by this this morning. Um, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching or the body of doctrine to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul here frames out being set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness with an obedience and a commitment from the heart to a body of doctrine, to a standard of teaching. It's the bottom line. And we're, we're not. I think one of the things we can be in danger of, of doing is... Um, Rejoicing in things like freedom from slavery to sin and those things and celebrating that, but not understanding that that whole thing is built on fundamental doctrine that does not change, that we cannot negotiate with. That is built on that. And one of the my third and final danger I think the UK church is in, particularly the charismatic church, is um, a biblical illiteracy. um, And people are singing about stuff and they're having a while of a time but actually don't really get what they're singing about. Uh, because they, they they're either not they're not being taught, either from the pulpit. I mean, when I go preach places, um, fairly regularly people come up to me after, after I've preached and said it was just so great to hear the gospel. I think what are you hearing every week? You know, or oh, so great that you preach from the Bible. man, seriously, a lot of the biggest churches seem it's just more motivational talks. Uh people aren't going to learn and grow. And, you know, I just think, I don't know what's going to happen when Jesus returns. I think there'll be a lot of surprising things and we just want to build well for that day and in the fear of God. Okay? Cup of tea.